0: This is day two of this March 2022 Seven Day Sashin, and I'm going to continue reading from this book, Silent Illumination by Guo Gu, A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. So we finished up uh, reading this yesterday. Uh, He says, we can free ourselves from this cycle, cycle of loss and success and failure, victim and perpetrator, can free ourselves by not confusing emotional afflictions with our true nature, by not confusing the furniture with the spaciousness of the room. When we free ourselves in this way, we allow the Buddha nature of those around us to also manifest. Through our understanding, we can engage with all beings in such a way as to help them bring out their own wisdom and compassion. To do all this, we must engage in practice. Then he goes on. As my teacher once said, People who experience personal suffering and undergo calamities and disasters are all great bodhisattvas. Why should we reduce them to pitiable victims? Conversely, why should we see those who inflict harm as perpetrators? Is it possible that they are themselves victims in some way? Moreover, do their actions possibly reflect our own tendencies to some extent? Could we see them as bodhisattvas and let them draw out our compassion for ourselves and them and therefore change the world? For everything that people do, there's a reason, there's a cause. Some people have a tendency to forgive themselves for the wrong that they do because... They kind of know how it happens or they think they do. Uh, But when they see others, they assume it's just deliberate evil. He says, what is unjust and wrong must be corrected. But we can do so with wisdom and compassion for ourselves and for others. All beings, including us, are suffering in a world of oppositions, yet in this suffering, there is also Buddha nature and awakening. <clears throat> As we said before, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle, sometimes harder than we can know. One of the, uh, the great benefits of personal suffering is just to help us have empathy for others. For life is too easy. <clears throat> sort of reminds me of the baby boomer, boomers saying, well, why don't these millennials just get a job? Everybody's conditions are different. He says, Buddha nature is not something we've lost but it is present right here and now. It's not a primordial state that we have to get back to. If we think like this, then we will create an opposition of past and present. We might even blame others for why we've lost it in the first place. We may see ourselves as the victims of our history, our culture, our education system, and so forth. Many people blame their parents, people in the past who mistreated them. He says all the things that have made us, quote, lose our true nature. Buddha nature exists in all, right here and right now. It is up to us to actualize it. <clears throat> Buddha nature manifests in all situations and at all times. It is empty of fixations, but full of possibilities. It can be empty of delusions, but full of compassion. This is the correct understanding. Whatever difficulties we face, it's all good. I-A-G, as I like to say. We practice engaging with all sentient beings so as to be free so as to free all from suffering. This is one of the wonderful aspects of practicing is just opening up to the people we meet, people we don't even know, shop clerks. People we may suspect are trumpers. Everybody is just so fascinating, so present. The whole joy of practice is opening, opening up, working with the ways that we've closed down and beginning to realize that it can change. That's why we're all here. <clears throat> this next section is called The Self, and he says, In delusion, Buddha nature appears as self. Yet originally, there is no self. It only appears as such because we attach to it the sense of me, I, and mine, and all the objects that we hold on to. Self is the result of grasping. Cultivation begins with exposing, embracing, embracing, transforming and letting go of self-referential grasping so we can realize the full potential of Buddha nature as wisdom and compassion. This is a formula he repeats several times, exposing, embracing, transforming, and letting go. this when things come up things we don't like pain discouragement instead of pushing it into the background leaving it to fester we air it out we bring it out we see it accept it That's the embracing this is how it is this is what I'm working with then it transforms and we can let it go For most of us, attachments to our thoughts and feelings, our inner monologues, defines who we are. They are all that we've ever known about ourselves. We're completely entwined with them, and we find it difficult to understand that we are more than just our own narratives, likes and dislikes, that we are originally free. Buddhist teachings point to the moment-to-moment emergence of phenomena in our minds, sensations, conceptions, and give these mental phenomena the general label of mental continuum. This mental continuum is experienced at different levels. At the very coarse level, our experience is that of a self. We have a sense that we are here, separate from what we see there. Even when we use a method of meditation, we feel we are sitting using a method and thoughts come and go invading our mental continuum there seems to be an eye that's sitting and experiencing my thoughts. this eye feels like a solid reference point a center through which we experience everything that's not this center <clears throat> Of course even short of awakening certainly short of full awakening this the solidity of this I begins to dissolve. Find ourselves a little freer. Find ourselves able to, say, enjoy the success of others. Find ourselves more ready to take on difficult tasks say difficult things. But to one degree or another, this eye feels like a solid reference point. He says, for example, as you read these words, you probably see their visual form and hear the internal speech they elicit as you read them. You also feel the sensations in your body as you read and are aware of the one who is witnessing all of these things. In other words, there's you, and then all the things you are experiencing. On this very superficial level, you feel there's a mind containing all these objects, and there is someone who possesses this mind, cluttered as it sometimes is. he puts it that way, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Mind containing all the objects, and then someone possessing the mind. Even the internally generated thoughts are somehow objectively experienced by the me of you. You feel you are the subjective experiencer and you have a sense of I that is in opposition to the world out there. This sense of I is a byproduct of the natural functioning of the brain's neurological wiring, which generates a sense of self that helps us to navigate the world. were designed to have this sense of I. It's not a mistake. It said this subjectivity, this sense of a separate self, is not where the problem lies. Subjectivity is the natural function of the brain. The problem lies with our deep-seated attachment to this me, I, and mine, and the discursive thinking that reifies it into a thing. <clears throat> well, reify means make into a thing. So literally, he says, so it's our attachment to this mental construction that leads us astray from our true nature. This whole project is letting go of our sense of a solid self. Sometimes people find it a little frightening. They get deeper into their practice and uh, things start to shift and change. Feel like they're going to fall into emptiness. Where would you fall? But sometimes we have to come up to the edge, retreat, come up, retreat. Over time it sinks in. He says, Chan teaches that this nature is intrinsically free from these fragmented, random mental activities that come and go, rise and perish. That's their nature. They liberate themselves, instant by instant, as they come and go. That said, no self is not a concept that we need to take on faith, nor is it a particular belief system that we have to accept unreservedly, It is simply the way things are. Even neuroscientists tell us that our self, in quotation marks here, is just patterns of neurosynaptic firings that change continuously. When we fixate on something that doesn't exist, we make erroneous choices and experience the consequences, suffering. So, What do we do? Says one way to realize this selfish, free- this selfless freedom, this fluid nature, is to apply ourselves to meditation. As we practice meditation, the mind starts to become more calm, concentrated, and clear. As our discursive thinking starts to subside, the mind naturally becomes focused on one thing, the method of meditation itself. As we progress, a subtler level of experience begins to manifest moment to moment. I call this freshness. There's only the experiencing itself, which is vibrant, not abiding anywhere, and lacks words or language to describe it. Another good word is vivid. Find ourselves suddenly surprised by an object or a color. Begin to appreciate things like snowfall, rain. Realize that the world is so rich. We've sucked the life out of it with our fixation on ourselves. with our sense of me and everything that isn't me. He says, at this subtle level, while we're meditating, we might hear the sound of an automobile going by, but its passing doesn't leave any trace on our minds. In each moment, we perceive with freshness and when the object disappears, our perception vanishes with it. We continue with our meditation. If we persist in the practice, All of our fragmented and scattered thoughts are reduced to a single point, the present moment. And going further, even our last bit of attachment to the present may suddenly vanish. When this happens, self-grasping disappears, leaving us with just experiencing. Without self, Buddha nature manifests. This vivid experiencing, wakeful and focused, is liberating. it's astounding just to be completely in the present and even to say the present we're just completely there there isn't any time when we cut off past cut off future there's a quote from the Zen teacher, John Tarrant. It's pretty apt. It says, there's a gate in the mind. Stepping through is like leaving the palace that has come to feel like a prison. On the other side of that gate, silence fills the spaces. Nothing is happening but what's happening. There's no urgency. Nothing more is needed than what's here in that silence and plainness. Things step forward and shine by themselves. Though I enjoy seeing this, I don't make it happen. It's not something that can be controlled. Help is unexpected. As the self dissolves, we make ourselves open to help, open for things to shift and change open to see things we've never seen before. Gogu goes on, that said, our persistence in genuine practice is dependent on our ability to work with the undercurrent feeling tones, all the subtle thoughts that shape our everyday experience. And then he goes on to examine those in the next chapter, which we're going to move to now. And this chapter is called The Underlying Feeling Tones. To be free, we must know what we should be free of. Ordinarily, our minds are cluttered with the thoughts and feelings of everyday living. Sometimes these thoughts are not fully formed concepts, but are simply underlying feeling tones. Most people are unaware of these feeling tones, yet it is precisely these feelings that shape our choices, reasoning, experience, and judgment. One of the reasons, Roshi Kaplow used to say, the reasons people give for the things they do are never the real reasons. We're, We're not even aware of what makes us do what we do, so much that we're missing, we don't see. He says, we have to learn to recognize them and work with them by cultivating particular attitudes. In practice, we need to develop an awareness of the overall tone of our internal states by helping us to clear out the clutter in our minds Meditation exposes these hidden internal states so that we can do something about them. Is this clearing itself awakening? No, it is simply practice, and self-grasping may still be present. In the Yogacara, or consciousness-only school of Buddhism, the underlying feeling tones are understood as mental factors. At any given moment in waking or sleeping life, There's always a mental factor present. If, for for example, the mental factor of restlessness is present in your mind, then no matter how you meditate, you will not be able to settle down. I call these mental factors underlying feeling tones, attitudes or moods we need to work with because they are often obstructive or negative. They can color our experience and prevent us from seeing things as they truly are. On the other hand, if we become aware of these feeling tones and learn to cultivate the right attitude toward them, then we will feel more grounded. Our wandering thoughts will decrease and we can become more focused in meditation and life. <clears throat> Chan Master Hong Ji, uh, this is the um, master who probably first set forth the method of silent illumination, he quotes him in many places in the book. Chan <clears throat> Master Ji refers to feeling tones as dust-like intentions and concerns that conceal the original bright mirror mind of natural awakening. Ji teaches that we have to recognize that there is nothing outside ourselves. If we expose and loosen our grasp on these feeling tones, we will not be affected by the objects of our experiencing either, because we no longer experience subject and object as separate, even when we fully engage with the world. And then he quotes him. Silent and still, abiding in itself, this suchness is apart from conditioning. Its luminosity is vast and spacious, without any dust. Directly, delusion is thoroughly relinquished. Arriving at this fundamental place, you realize it is not, it is not something newly acquired today. Though it is like this, it must be actualized. To actualize it in this moment is to simply not allow a single thing to arise, a single speck of dust to cover it. Be spaciousness and completely clear. Don't engage with dust-like intentions. Dissolve your concerns. Just take a backward step and open your grasping hands. Beautiful to read, very, very hard to do. Once we have exposed negative feeling tones, we can foster correct attitudes that resonate with our original freedom. Many of our subtle tendencies are hidden from our awareness. If we are unaware of what's going on inside us, simply practicing seated meditation won't take us too far along the road to liberation. This is why many practitioners, after years of meditation, wonder why it is that they are still vexed by the same people and events in their lives. How can it be that in seated meditation they're able to gain peace, but in the busyness of life, They are basically the same people. If we don't expose the subtle tendencies that govern the way we practice and in turn cultivate correct attitudes, we inevitably perpetuate separateness, opposition, and self-referential thinking. These subtle, undercurrent tendencies manifest as the attitudes we have toward life. We need to expose them and cultivate the right attitudes to bring out our wisdom and compassion. Where do we find them? Find them in all the things we dread. Every time we have a bad feeling, there's something there to look at. Getting a reminder there's grist for the mill. It's not a problem call to action, call to awareness. He says from a Buddhist perspective, the distinction between thoughts and feeling tones is that thoughts are fully formed concepts while the feeling tones are subtle intentions, perceptions, or moods, which are subtle thoughts. Whether we realize it or not, there are millions of subtle feeling tones that shape our experience in any given situation we're just not aware of them there is no clear-cut difference between thoughts and feelings yet we make a clear divide between them and then which then shapes the way we articulate our inner experience and even understand buddhism for example many people read the buddhist literature on the importance of having correct view it's one of the one step in the eightfold path the buddha's eightfold path <clears throat> and they co- interpret it as some kind of knowledge or understanding, in other words, as correct thoughts. This is only partially correct. In Buddhism, thoughts and feelings are inseparable. If we can cultivate wholesome attitudes, we would naturally have correct understanding of these things. Therefore, I emphasize cultivating correct attitudes and being more aware of subtle feeling tones. In order to become aware of undercurrent feeling tones, we have to train ourselves to experience them. The more immersed in our inner states we are, the more experienced we become, and the more we're able to navigate them and become skillful practitioners. So we develop the ability to know what's going on. We'll never know everything that's going on body and mind are so incredibly complex, so much going on. I think I might have heard somewhere that there are more connections in the brain than there are stars in the universe. <clears throat> There's so much more that we can know. It says we have to cultivate some important attitudes in our practice. These should be cultivated in all aspects of our lives beyond merely sitting meditation. Very important point. <clears throat> Everything we accomplish in Zazen is for the purpose of our life. Our Zazen supports our life. Our life, ideally, supports our Zazen. If you're maintaining awareness when you're off the mat, then when you come back to the mat, so much easier, so much quicker and simpler <clears throat> to find your way back. Says sheen is so important. Walking down the hall, going to lunch, doing your work. Don't let the mind drift. Don't fall into your habitual ways. bright and alert, aware. It says we have to cultivate some important attitudes in our practice. These should be cultivated in all aspects of our lives beyond mere sitting meditation. In the remainder of this and the next chapters, I list some of these important attitudes. It is up to each of us to explore them one by one, then together to see their interconnections and also the ways they affect our inner experience. Cultivating correct attitudes transforms the way we carry ourselves, relate to others, and engage with the world. In this way, everything becomes our path. Life becomes practice. So we can foster the necessary proactive prerequisites for realizing ourselves we learn how to open how not to close off we learn how to enjoy our life it's not grim it's not about rubbing our noses in what we don't like it's about freedom and this next section is called How to Cultivate Right Attitudes he says we can cultivate right attitudes through a fourfold process of exposing, embracing transforming and letting go when practitioners come across the familiar Buddhist teaching of non-grasping they think that they have to let go of everything and that this is something they can do right away and that once they've done so everything will be fine the truth is We have to first see what it is that we have to let go of. We have to expose our subtle emotional afflictions and negative habits. In exposing them, we may recognize that they have been part of us for a long time, that there is a history behind our behaviors. They may be part of our defense mechanisms and survival skills. So we have to accept them. Oftentimes are things from Childhood think of a child so powerless in relation to the adults so dependent on their parents even the best parents are going to make mistakes child learns finds ways of protecting itself they're not always skillful <clears> this <throat> is the point that joko beck makes quite a bit then we carry them into our adult life defense mechanisms that made sense when we were a child and don't serve us any longer. He says we have to accept them. They're there. They're part of us. It's okay. Only once we accept them will we be able to take responsibility for and work through them. Then we will no longer be under their influence. This is letting go of them. This is a long process, And it's not linear, but circular. The more we're able to see, see, <coughs> see, the more we need to embrace. The more we embrace and let our feelings come through us, the more we're able to expose the deeper layers of our habits. The more we work through them, the more we are able to let go and accept ourselves. In time, we become freer. This letting go is actually the easiest part of the process because it happens naturally and suddenly but we must first do our preparatory work. We cannot anticipate when those habitual tendencies will release themselves and we cannot will it to happen. In fact, this is completely counterproductive. When those tendencies are tendencies to say anxiety, dread, we want it to go, we want it to go, we're impatient. We have to expose it, which means we have to accept it. We have to embrace it. have to let the process work. <clears throat> he says practice is a lifetime process that brings out the best in us. So I think we have time to begin on the first of those attitudes. This is contentment. The first attitude we have to cultivate is the feeling of contentment. Contentment counters and overrides our constant tendency to grasp and chase after things. Contentment has the flavor of being at ease, grasping nothing, lacking nothing. It is being open and leisurely. In this state We don't make anything into a big deal, while at the same time we engage with the freshness of each moment. Cultivating an attitude of contentment is engaging with, and yet not grasping, at causes and conditions. We're swayed by causes and conditions when we feel a sense of lack and when grasping is present. We inevitably get sucked into the vortex of grasping and rejecting, having and lacking. These polarities bring up all sorts of other issues, such as trying to escape from who we are, or alternatively, trying desperately to be someone we're not. Of course, contentment means being okay with who we are. As I first heard in AA, being comfortable in our own skin. He says there is no formulaic way to cultivate contentment or non-grasping. We need to personally explore the flavor of contentment and digest this feeling little by little, becoming familiar with it in our lives. We can't just force this attitude on ourselves and expect to be able to plow through all of our problems. Contentment is not a mere concept. We need to appreciate the depth of what it means to be content. It's not just being disinterested or detached from everything. Really, contentment is the deepest happiness. Contentment is being able to sit quietly in a room. Being able to wait in line without impatience. Being okay when we're late somewhere. It's being able to move along with things as they are. There's a guy named Sam Harris, a neuroscientist and a Buddhist meditator, said, most of us spend our time seeking happiness and security without acknowledging the underlying purpose of our search. Each of us is looking for a path back to the present. We're trying to find good enough reasons to be satisfied now. Sashin is such an opportunity to be here now. In fact, it's the best way to do sashin. Don't worry about what's coming next. Don't get into thinking about time. Don't worry that you can't handle what's coming up. You can. Especially if you're not tied in knots by trying to avoid it. Gogu says, when we're content, we appreciate what we have and we are able to engage fully with whatever may arise. There's a freshness to it. With contentment, we're able to avail ourselves openly of everything without rejecting anything. In this process, there may be pain and grief, but we are cultivating the ability to feel fully, to be present to whatever arises without judgment. Allowing such feelings to move through us will make us stronger. We are incredibly resilient. Our hearts and minds will eventually accept and release whatever comes through us. Don't think that your suffering has no purpose. When we bring awareness into the equation, we grow. We learn. Compassion grows. <clears throat> Our confidence grows. We realize we can handle it. He says, To do this, we have to be in tune with the body and anchor ourselves in it. Contentment resides in the heart, and it has an associated bodily component. Of course, everything, Everything has a bodily component. We experience everything in our bodies. It so says the easiest way to become familiar with contentment is to physically relax the body. We relax from the crown of the head to the toes, section by section. We relax the skin, pores, muscles, tendons. This means actually feeling different areas of our bodies. Most people are so out of tune with their bodies that they don't really know how to relax or what their bodies feel. So this requires practice. It Helps when you take your seat, just to make sure the body is relaxed. Shoulders loose, no strain. Stomach relaxed. Chest open. This is something we can do a lot with outside of Sashin. But even in Sashin, when we're resting, really rest. Let the tension flow out of you. See where you're blocked. Release. He says, being in tune with bodily feelings of contentment and non-grasping releases physical pain. For example, sometimes after long hours of sitting meditation, we experience waves of bodily pain and an attitude of repulsion sets in. Naturally, we want to escape the pain. If we are oblivious to the subtle undertone of repulsion, the pain becomes more acute and intractable. Soon our whole body is burning up. However, when we expose what is happening within us, we can detect whether we are feeling aversion. Perhaps we are bolstering this discomfort with stories and images. Is there an undertone, underlying tone of fear? When aversion is present, pain becomes exaggerated. So if any of these negative feelings are present, we need to first expose our attitude and then relax the body physically. Only then will it become easier to soften our negative feelings and to release them. This work will naturally bring about a shift in our attitude toward physical discomfort. Not only does our threshold for it increase, the pain itself actually becomes bearable but if we can't even recognize how we're feeling and how it is shaping our ex- actual experience how can we let go of negative mental states i struggled mightily with pain in my early sessions and i had something happen over and over again it's a pattern i would go through the first <clears throat> 10 or 15 minutes of the round okay, pain not really there. And then maybe the monitor would get up or it would occur to me that I was about into the middle of the round. And the minute I had that thought, the pain would flare up. It's just automatic. Clearly, I was tensing up. Didn't know what to do with it. (laughs) I just suffered. But over time, the body relaxed, things stretched out, and it wasn't quite so terrible. But even after many years, I remember going to Roshi once and just talking about how much trouble I was having with physical pain. And he said, John, you just have to trust the process. And <clears throat> something turned. Not that the pain went away, but it's just more workable. Not dealing with pain on top of pain. And what applies to physical pain applies to mental and emotional pain as well. Okay, we're we're at our time limit. Uh, We'll stop now and recite the four vows.